Hello, and welcome to your next episode of Fixing Fitness with Kelly, the show that serves up real talk about fitness with a focus on why traditional fitspo just doesn't serve women in their 30s. Let's talk about what we can really do to get results that make all the effort worth it. Get more on the website at kellymarieroach.com, including exclusive access to my head-to-toe mobility routine when you download my free guide to the five worst exercise cues in the fitness industry. And tune into the Kelly M. Roach YouTube channel for weekly videos offering fresh perspectives on fixing fitness topics. What's up, everybody? Welcome back for Season 2, Episode 7. And this episode, uh, Myth Busting, has a couple of topics that I'm hitting on because I've just noticed that there's a lot of information about fitness, exercises in particular, nutrition, wellness in general, just what have you out there that is presented as fact, where when you go and you try to find the source of these facts, where they originated, you can sometimes end up in this cross-referencing loop where there is no original citation, or sometimes worse than that, you find out that the original place or point in time or study that caused a fact to enter the world, enter the internet, um, enter common parlance um, in the fitness industry is either untrue, has since been disproven, or really never should have been presented as fact in the first place. So I found three topics in particular that I wanted to address this with in today's episode. Um, So I'm really excited to get into it. Um, Before we do, I want to let you know, one of my cats has chosen my office to play in um, during my recording time. So if you hear some background noise, that is what's going on there. I am going to do my best to reduce that in editing, but FYI. Um, And in other news, there is going to be something very exciting for you all being released very, very soon. And I think that over on Instagram is probably where I will be announcing it first, but it is something that I'm something new that I'm bringing out that I think is really going to help with a lot of what we talk about here um, in a much more action-based physical way. So stay tuned for that. If you aren't over on Instagram yet, it is at kellym.roach. Um, so make sure you are following along over there. Look for that announcement. And that's all I have on the admin side. So let's get into season two, episode seven, myth busting. Myth number one or question number one that we are addressing today, is salt really bad for you? So I've been seeing a lot of posts lately about how increasing your salt intake can improve your hydration levels. And if timed appropriately, a big sodium bump can even replace your pre-workout. But common knowledge to date has claimed that excessive salt consumption can lead to a myriad of health conditions like high blood pressure, stroke, stomach cancer, and heart disease. So what gives? Well, do you remember the bulletproof coffee trend? A traditional bulletproof coffee is black coffee with one tablespoon of butter and one tablespoon of MCT oil. And MCT oil is usually made from palm or coconut oils, and it contains medium chain triglycerides. So butter and MCT oil are both fats, basically. Bulletproof coffee was touted as providing hours of clean burning energy without the crash you'd experience from a typical Western breakfast of sugary cereals or carbs. However, adding bulletproof coffee to your morning, but carrying on with your usual diet for the rest of the day was counterproductive. 
Bulletproof coffee most benefits those on a low-carb or even keto diet because their bodies are burning fat as an energy source. But if you consume a bulletproof coffee at breakfast and mid-morning you're reaching for a bagel or oatmeal, you're creating chaos in your body's energy-making system. This comes down to how your body processes fats and carbs for energy. Your body's preferred source of energy is carbohydrates because they break down the most quickly. Fats are next on the hierarchy and in a pinch, proteins. When you consume carbohydrates, your body breaks it down into glucose. The pancreas releases insulin, which shuttles the glucose into cells to be used as energy. As glucose in the bloodstream decreases, the level of insulin goes down as well. Energy needs have been met for now. So what happens when you eat a lot of fats alongside those carbs? Fats are processed for energy much more slowly, but they too are broken down and shuttled to the cells for energy. If our immediate energy needs have been met by carbohydrates, insulin will shuttle anything that's left over into our fat cells to store for later use. Those on low-carb or keto diets have taught their bodies to turn to fat stores as a primary energy source because they have very little glucose available for their bodies to use. So a bulletproof coffee is going to be interpreted quickly as energy input. But for those who eat an average to high amount of carbohydrates, and it's worth noting that most people consuming a Western diet eat a very high amount of carbs, Drinking a bulletproof coffee in the morning is going to flood your body with triglycerides, which are going to hang out in the bloodstream while your body turns first to your glucose stores, not the triglycerides. So when your energy needs have been met, what happens? Your body gets to work storing those fats for later. So whether or not bulletproof coffee is good for you depends on how your body currently processes energy from food. Okay, so you're asking, what does this have to do with whether or not salt is good for me? In many ways, whether or not salt is good for you is an echo of the same story. It is true that adding a pinch of salt to water can help to keep you hydrated for longer. Sodium is an electrolyte, which is a mineral that can help maintain hydration levels in the body. So if you're someone who eats mostly a whole food, not packaged or processed food diet, and you rely primarily on herbs and spices for flavor, then chances are good you don't have a lot of sodium in your diet. And adding salt to the foods that you're eating or even the water you're drinking can be beneficial. But most people consuming a traditional Western diet are getting plenty of sodium in their diet from the foods they eat already. So adding salt to their water, or even their foods for that matter, is crossing over into excessive sodium consumption where the health risks lay. So if you're considering whether adding more salt to your diet is a good idea for you, start by asking more than what. Figure out how much sodium you're already consuming on average to start, because it might be the case, as with the Bulletproof Coffee, that what you've got going on with your body doesn't require anything extra. Myth number two. Don't let your knees go over your toes. So you're following along to an online workout. When you enter the lunging sequence, for example, the trainer warns against letting your knee come forward over your toes as you lower into the lunge. 
you diligently restrict your movement to make sure your knee stays right above your ankle and complete the sequence, proud that you've avoided unnecessary knee pain by following this simple form instruction. So what if I told you that this is all wrong for multiple reasons? The cue to never let your knee come over your toes allegedly has its origins all the way back in 1959 from a single flawed study. In that study, Dr. Carl Klein compared 128 competitive weightlifters against 386 subjects with no competitive weightlifting experience. He concluded that deep squats, where the knees pass over the toes, had a quote, debilitative effect on the ligamental structures of the knee. What this basically means is that the further your knees go over your toes in a squat, the more the knee becomes the load-bearing joint in the movement, which can create a higher risk for a shearing injury. He recommended squatting only to parallel and no further. This study reached the general public in a 1962 issue of Sports Illustrated, and it's pretty much been a bro science fact ever since. However, numerous other studies in the last 50 odd years have been conducted. One in particular in 2003 looked at knee and hip forces during the squat when forward knee movement was restricted. What they found was, yeah, there was 22% less knee torque when knees did not pass over the toes versus when they did. However, this study did a better job of looking at the whole picture than Dr. Klein did. What it also found was that when knees were not allowed to pass over the toes, there was up to a whopping 1,070% increase in torque through the hips and lower back. What this implies is that the load you've protected your knees from has just been shifted into the hips, lower back, or possibly other areas of the body. And if you've ever experienced lower back pain from squats, you've probably experienced this. Earlier this year, in March of 2023, a comprehensive review of the limitations of anterior knee displacement during different barbell squat techniques was published in the Journal of Clinical Medicine. Anterior knee displacement, or AKD for short, is just a fancy term for when your knees pass over your toes. These authors looked at the widespread inconsistency in terminology for various barbell squat techniques, variations, start and end positions, and dissimilar lever lengths created by the body. And they concluded the following. Traditional technique guidelines for barbell squats and generalized recommendations regarding AKD should be critically questioned. Individual anatomy, anthropometry, and barbell placement all contribute to the resulting movement patterns during different barbell squat techniques. Although the deliberate restriction of AKD can reduce the torque on the knees, Traditional recommendations of AKD result in altered knee and hip coordination with a stronger upper body inclination, enhanced trunk flexion in the thoracic and lumbar spine, and consequently disproportionately high forces transferred towards the hip joints and lower back. In other words, the studies that say you shouldn't let your knees come forward over the foot during a squat are dangerously incomplete and miss a lot of the big picture. I've spoken at length on this podcast about how postural adaptations are often at play here as well, making it difficult to recruit the appropriate muscles to perform an exercise. Squats are one of the biggest examples of this. 
This is important because technically you are at risk of overloading the knee joint with any weight-bearing exercise where you are lowering your body by bending your knees and pushing against the resistance to extend them again. This is why activating the appropriate muscle to perform a movement is so important. As you lower into a squat, the joints will take on load, but it's the muscles of your glutes, quads, and hamstrings that are supporting the joints. If you aren't activating your glutes, your hip joints have no support. If your hamstrings and quads aren't activated, your knee joints have no support. Your back muscles will tag in and you'll walk away with achy knees and a sore low back. Fix this by learning to activate the right muscles to perform the movement and make sure that you can do so adequately before increasing the weight. If you increase resistance and no longer feel your glutes and legs firing, reduce the weight again because it probably means that you've exceeded what those muscles are capable of and the secondary movers like the low back have tagged in. All of this supports the notion that because we all have different body shapes, lengths, and sizes, a squat is going to look a little bit different on all of us and it is possible that your knees are going to pass over your toes in a deep squat. But that cue about avoiding knees over toes, while not entirely a myth, so to speak, created a lot of unnecessary fear by leaving out some crucial information about where it came from. And investigative item number three, cupping therapy. Does it work? My chiropractor has been using dry cupping to help release tension in my upper traps. A couple of weeks ago, I met a friend for dinner and mentioned it. And she said that she'd read there have been several studies debunking cupping as a therapy, finding no medical or scientific support for its claims, and instead attributing most of its benefits to the placebo effect. So the theory behind dry cupping is that the suction draws fluid into the treated area, increasing blood flow and promoting healing at a cellular level. Possible outcomes of cupping therapy include reducing inflammation, enhancing circulation, removing toxins, and muscle relaxation. As a form of alternative medicine, cupping therapy's origins are thousands of years old. And like many such therapies, there is an extreme shortage of scientific studies accurately and repeatedly finding a direct cause and effect relationship between the practice and its results. I even cast around for quite a while in scientific databases looking for something on point that would support continuing the practice and couldn't come up with much. And yet it is a therapy commonly used and even relied upon by elite athletes. I first saw cupping bruises on Michael Phelps during the Olympics and then started noticing them on the women's gymnastics team and even other swimmers. So surely there had to be something more than placebo effect going on, right? Left without solid science to turn to here, I can only share my own experience. My practitioner turned to cupping therapy when we discovered I didn't tolerate dry needling well. From the Cleveland Clinic's definition, dry needling is a treatment that healthcare providers use for pain and movement issues associated with myofascial trigger points. With this technique, a provider inserts thin needles into or near your trigger points. The needles stimulate your muscles, which cause them to contract or twitch. This helps relieve pain and improve range of motion. So this is different from acupuncture, which actually draws upon traditional Chinese medicine to stimulate energy flow within the body. 
A dry needle reaches four layers deep through the skin to sort of poke the trigger point in the muscle. Dry cupping is commonly promoted as being able to reach to the same depth, but I found this to be a circular reference without any scientific citation to back it up. Either way, at my chiropractor's office, we transitioned to dry cupping as a less invasive, possibly less effective way to try and achieve the same thing. I've had this performed on my back on the flat space between my shoulder blade and spine, as well as on the smaller areas where the base of the neck transitions into the upper traps. And I found the therapy more effective on my back than on my neck. And my personal opinion about this is that it's down to the size of the cup used and the larger, flatter surface area. I didn't experience any immediate relief in muscle tension in my neck and upper back in exchange for a week's worth of bruises in the area. And if I could tolerate it, I probably would return to the dry needling in that area as a more effective therapy. Now, none of this is to dismiss dry cupping outright. And if it's true that it is down to the placebo effect, that alone can be a pretty powerful therapy. The nice thing about dry cupping is that it's non-invasive and relatively low risk if you aren't contraindicated. If you're curious, it certainly couldn't hurt to ask your practitioner about it. So that's where I'm going to leave off with those three myths, common facts, things that are presented as fact, therapies that are presented as being for sure effective, etc. It's definitely thought-provoking stuff, if nothing else. The question about salt and sodium intake, I think it's very individualized. I think that a lot of these things come to us from very authoritative sources that don't necessarily cite where they're getting their advice from. They just throw it out there as a singular little tidbit, you know, start adding salt to your water. Okay, but how much salt are you taking in the rest of the day? Drink bulletproof coffee. Okay, but are you on a primarily fat-based diet for your energy or carbohydrates? Because as I discussed, throwing a bullet coffee into a carb-heavy diet isn't going to work. Um, the cupping therapy is super interesting, very thought-provoking, and I think that one, I was truly surprised by the lack of scientific support for it because I honestly thought that my friend was kidding me um, because it shocked me that a reputable chiropractic office would use a therapy that didn't have scientific backing. So that one's very interesting. And um, our third one about the squat form, lunge form, about that over adding overloading your knee joint with too much torque and not allowing your knees to pass over your toes. Um, I was less surprised by that one than I thought just because of the reasons that were given, that when you deliberately restrict your body's movement in one area, it's going, your body's smart. It's just going to shift it to another part of the body. But finding actual scientific studies that extrapolated upon that and spelled that out was really, really interesting. So the whole point of today's episode is all of these things that are presented to you as fact, whether it's on Instagram or TikTok or Pinterest or wherever you are consuming your fitness-related content, question it. If they don't actually come out right and say what their sources are, question it and do a little research for yourself because you might find that something that they're saying everybody should be doing, maybe you shouldn't be. So thanks so much for listening. We've got a few episodes left in season two. Remember to follow along over on Instagram at kellym.roach. Looking for some big announcements coming up soon. With that, I will leave you here and... Tune in again next week. Talk to you then. Bye-bye.